Architects are optimists in their nature. They have to be. They can envision and imagine a world that's better for people around them. That's why so many people get into the field of architecture. They want to make the world a better place. I'm Dr. Lamont Repolette, the president of Kane, New Jersey's Urban Research University. This is Urban Impact, a podcast where we examine the complex issues facing urban communities through meaningful conversations with scholars, community leaders, and others who are driving change. Recorded and produced on our campus in Union, New Jersey, this is Urban Impact. Here are your hosts, Michael Salvatore and Barbara George Johnson. So, hey, Mike Salvatore, we're back. Hey, Barbara. I'm so excited to be sitting next to you again for season two. Me too. I'm excited for our first conversation with Dean David Money from our School of Public Architecture here at Kane. Well, good morning to both of you. It's great to be with you. It's uh, an auspicious start to, to be the first guest this year. I'm, I'm delighted to, to partake in that. So, David, you know that I'm thrilled to have you as a colleague and to be working with you in urban communities. Let me ask you, can architecture impact the well-being of a community? I wouldn't be doing this for 40 years if I didn't think that were the case. And, and yes, absolutely it can. Architects are optimists in their nature. They have to be. They can envision and imagine a world that's better for people around them. That's why so many people, so many of our students get into the field of architecture. They want to make the world a better place. And to have a chance to work with young people with all of that optimism and try and frame their their learning so that they can apply that is, has really been a welcome opportunity. Um, all my life, I've wanted to engage with the public in a meaningful way. And we've seen all kinds of new public spaces that have come about. Um, that really, I think, allow places for people to engage with each other in a new way, uh, to sort of take in nature, um, to, to have a sense beyond the kind of minutia of the moment to engage in more fully with the world around them. Um, sometimes it's providing particular kinds of resources, um, recognizing that an area is underserved um, and needs, needs to, a, a certain kind of support maybe in, in food establishments and access to, to better food. Sometimes it's in education. Uh, one of our students did a very interesting proposal for Trenton uh, that proposed a series of small educational uh, places because she realized there were, there were no place for students, young kids especially, to find any, any kind of even recreation there. And she made places that combined both a learning environment and recreation for them. So I would think that the, the, the mothers and fathers, those small children, if we got those built, would be just thrilled with the interventions at a very small scale, not costing a lot of money, uh, but making an environment that's better for their children. So David, urban design, uh, really complex topic, but nobody knows it better than you. So I, I'd like to hear about those complexities uh, because, and why is it really important now to be talking about architecture and the impacts upon urban communities? Yeah. You know, there was a period of time in the middle of the 20th century when the, the professional field got very specific and it divided itself up into different kinds of engineering and architecture, um, urban planning, these kinds of things. And somehow what was missing was what was pulling all of those things together. Where do they relate to each other and make something more out of the whole, something more than just the individual pieces? And urban design is a pretty good example of that because it brings in the different scales in which we live in the world today 
and really works to integrate them together from the landscape to the infrastructure to the buildings, the interior of the buildings. All of these things are thought, thought about in a holistic way, a comprehensive way, because that's how people live their lives, right? Uh, and that's, that's the opportunity I think we have now to look at that and understand how it is we can work with people uh, to make every aspect of the physical environment in which they live better. So David, um, with the Michael Graves College of uh, Public Architecture, when people think of architecture, they think of this discipline that's really about, you know, um, design, spatial change, uh, bricks and mortar, right? And creating those, um, the bricks and mortar that go into a space. But there's also the discipline of urban planning. Mm -hmm. So are you combining those two in the, uh, based on the comments that you just made? Are they still separate disciplines uh, with points of connectivity? And are your students learning both? Mm -hmm. that, that's a great question, Barbara. You know, you, th you think about an architectural project for a building, and we have a pretty good idea of what that entails, how you, how you build the building, what it's made of, the structure, the kind of spaces inside. But you can apply that same idea to the sense of a city. And we can start to think about the spaces in a city and how people live. Sometimes the spaces between buildings are more important than the buildings themselves. That's the public realm that exists. Inside the building may be more private. It may be taken up with a specific use or a specific group of people. But where we all come together in the public realm is really a key component of, of how we see ourselves and understand ourselves in a civic way. And that's something we really try and instill in our students. You know, there was a video that circulated years ago, uh, Sir Ken Robinson, and he talked about creativity and actually how schools and their structure killed creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I've heard you talk about this a little bit, David, not specifically in this context, but um, in terms of uh, seeing things differently uh, and not accepting the environment for uh, what is laid out in front of us. And, mm -hmm. and I've also heard you talk about uh, architecture as a, as a public activity. So uh, can, I, I'd like you to, to expand upon that. And so how is architecture a public activity, but also how do we promote creativity so that we're not uh, being overly structural in terms of its format and context? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a story I like to tell about coming to Kane uh, almost 10 years ago now, and I, I met the president at the time and walked into his office, and, and he didn't even say hello to me. He just looked at me and said, you're an architect. Tell me what you really believe about architecture. Um, <laughs> And I kind of thought for a second, and then I came back to him with Vitruvius, the Roman engineer who wrote the first treatise on architecture 2,000 years ago, who said architecture was an equal balance of commodity, firmness, and delight. Commodity, that it serves a purpose, firmness, that it's built to last, and delight, it brings, brings joy to people. Well, the president went off on delight for about 10 minutes, just off on his own, and I realized he really wanted the job himself to be the dean of this new, this new school. Um, but I ended up in it. And, and I think this happens in a lot of professions. We can see where we get so entranced with the kind of professional details uh, of how, how things happen, whether it's technology or whether if you're a lawyer, it's the, the, the legalese that goes into making an argument. And we sometimes lose track of the fact that this affects people outside these professions. And we need to be mindful of that and understand it from their point of view. This is the real opportunity that we have, not just to, to talk to each other, not just architects talking to architects, but how do architects talk to everyday people? How do we find a way to communicate with them? That's been a kind of driving mission for our new college. And we hope it's one of the ways that really differentiates us from, from our peers. 
So how did you come to this philosophy? I, I liked that you said that you mentioned, uh, I think, purpose and delight when you talked about uh, the uh, approach to architecture. I like the fact that you said spaces between buildings can be just as important, even more important than the buildings themselves. But I know that you probably... Um, your training was probably more of a traditional training in architecture, I imagine. I'm making a large assumption. Um, how did you come to your philosophy in thinking about architecture in those spaces between buildings and with purpose and, and making sure that there is delight in the community when they see or walk into these uh, buildings and spaces? Well, maybe this is the value of, of a kind of liberal education in, in being exposed to a lot of different ideas before you specialize in a particular profession. Um, and if, if you look widely at the world and care about the world, you, you, you try and understand it from different points of view and don't immerse yourself in just a single point of view of, of a design professional, for example. So I, I, I did four years of a kind of traditional liberal arts education and then moved into a professional uh, program to learn about architecture. But I had that basis of caring about the public and wanting to see where we could engage with it. Uh, and I've kept that through through my in, entire life. Um, so I've, I've carried out projects that I hope engage with the public. I've written a couple books um, that were focused in that way. Um, and throughout all my entire academic career, both here and in my previous deanship, we really worked hard with communities to try and figure out uh, what, what would be valuable to them. Now, Mike, to your question about creativity, this is something I've learned. You can go, I interview every applicant to the architecture program. I talk to them all one-on-one. -on -one. And one of the things you realize when you do that is they have a different kind of intelligence from a lot of other people. And I actually have come to believe that there are multiple types of intelligence, and there are people who've written about this. Professor Gardner at Harvard has talked about this. Easy way to describe it is, is think about music. I love music. I don't have a clue how you make music, but a musician does. They have a musical intelligence that allows them to understand how you can take the elements of music and make something out of it. Well, I think I can do that with architecture because I do have what I think is a spatial intelligence. And that's what our students all have. They can conceptualize space in their heads so that they can see things three-dimensionally. They can start to manipulate that and arrange, rearrange it in their head. And then the amazing thing is they take those ideas they put it down on paper or they put it down on a screen and then it becomes real. And as an architect, it actually gets built and someone pays you to do that, to take this thing out of your head and have it become real in the world. And that becomes your, your profession. It's, it's a pretty powerful thing to see something you've designed, thought about in your head, get made. And then suddenly somebody's actually paying you and thanking you because they never could have imagined it themselves. One of my favorite projects was one of our graduating students for her thesis. She's from Union City, New Jersey. And she redesigned all of the bus stops on the main street in, in, in Union City, Bergen Line Avenue. Um, and she came up with these absolutely beautiful bus stops. But they were real. Uh, it was both wonderful design, but something you could build. So this summer, after she finished her thesis, I called up the mayor of Union City, cold call, just called him up and said, Mayor, I, I want to introduce you to this student. You need to see what she's done. And so we went to meet the mayor, and I just said to him, you should build these, all right? Well, he's trying to give her a job, first of all, so at least there's some progress there. But he really could. And to me, this was sort of the perfect balance of high design quality that I think every architecture school is, uh, um, really um, tries to reach for but also applying it in a way where it affects the real world. It's not architects talking to architects anymore. It's a, it's a wonderful architecture student 
who can have the vision of what her community can be like and is able to show that to the mayor to the point that maybe, maybe we could get that bill. If you can share a little bit about the work that you did in um, when you were at the University of Kentucky, I mm-hmm. think, yes. uh, with communities and neighborhoods, and then how you see that translating to our students here at Kane and the work that we're about to embark on uh, in the city of Trenton, our capital city, with the Coalport Project, mm-hmm. which then speaks to the, the story you just shared about the a young lady from Union City. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said at the beginning, I think so many of our students are, are optimists. They want to make the world a better place. What they not often had access to in a lot of architecture schools are the opportunities to do that, right? You get so wrapped up in the the details of a a professional education, it's hard to break out of that and find the places where you can engage with the real world. At Kentucky, I I ran into that. And I I remember one one colleague um, I'd hired to to run a new historic preservation program. We get into an argument one day. He's a very demonstrative kind of guy, wonderful fellow. He actually reached across the table and he grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me, okay, which was fine. It was just the way he was. And he said, you architects, you just don't get it. You can do something nobody else can do, which is to show people what their world can be like, but you only talk to yourselves about it. And wow, that was a revelation. So I called up the head of the Downtown Development Authority in Lexington, Kentucky, and said, I want to move a group of students into your office. And he said, sure. So all of a sudden, Our students had access to the mayor, the development authority, city officials, and others, and they started to explore to see what was possible. And one very interesting studio, students identified a whole series of underutilized parcels of lands, irregular plots that nobody had been able to figure out how to build on. They did housing projects for all these plots, all right? And we put them up and did a major exhibition. Hundreds of people came one evening to see it. 18 months later, half those plots were being developed as housing by developers who'd seen it. The developers couldn't see it themselves, but our students, third year, fourth year, fifth year students, had the vision to be able to show them what was possible. What I love about the Watson Institute and what I love about being at Kane is you have given us access to those political connections and potential for resources and the audience to begin to carry out some of these ideas. I think our students understand the built world in which we live better than most people. Again, it's this visual knowledge, the spatial knowledge that they have and the experience. But now with resources to be able to actually work on real projects and get to the point we can start to shape some of these things, it's, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity and I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here at this time. And that's what we're talking about, is the urban impact, right? We're mm-hmm. talking about urban research. and, and what better examples than the ones you provided? And, I, and here's the other opportunity we have at Kane, which is Wenjo Kane University, right? For, for everything we're doing here, we have the chance to do it in China as well. And then you have this incredible learning environment to start to understand how things are done there, the different ideas of what space even is in America versus China. How do we understand these things? So we, we've started a project that, that I would love to pick up Again, the pandemic sort of got in the way of this for a while, but I hope we can pick it up. We've got an idea to work with the Raritan Valley train line and propose interventions at every single station, all 18 of them, as you head out to Highbridge from Newark, okay? And figure out what would be, be in the best interest of the people. 
is it an urban design problem? Is it adding new housing? Is it an interior renovation of an existing station? Is it adding additional services? Is it making new wayfinding? Doing all of those things. And then making a big exhibition. I, I, my dream is to actually have material we can put on the advertising platforms at each of the stations so the commuters going in at the rail station could actually look at what the potential of these stations could be in the future. But now think about China. If we've got a system where we're looking at at infrastructure and how development occurs in New Jersey, could we do the same thing in China? And what we started working on is a very different system of infrastructure, which is the river that runs through downtown Wenzhou, which for 3,000 years has been the infrastructure that development occurred in Wenzhou. Mm -hmm. So the Wenritang River, suddenly we're, studying the, we're starting to study the various settlements that have existed on that river and how they have changed over time and what interventions we could propose to make them even better. And then you bring those two ideas together of one, a kind of 19th century, 20th century build infrastructure in the United States, other centuries long infrastructure in China, and you start to discuss them. What an incredible opportunity for the students to sort of learn about the nature of public space and how to make it better in the world around them. Can you share a little bit if any, uh, how you've engaged uh, the community? Well, the most important thing is just to talk to people and, and listen. You've you got to listen. You, got, you can't just parachute in and do something and then, and then leave. You've got to find a way to understand and listen and engage. So one project in Kentucky was interesting. There was a, a development um, that had been made after the riots in the 60s. And a whole African-American community had been displaced from central Lexington out to the suburban location, okay? Very clearly done as a way to, to um, manage what the, the threat of civil unrest. And this community had been there for 40 years. Um, there was one way, one road to get in, all right? And again, from my point of view, it was a matter of control. And so the, the people came to us and they said, we want a sign, people don't know where we are. And as we sat and talked to them, we realized what they really wanted was another road. They wanted another way to get in and out of their neighborhood and not de be dependent on simply one means of access. And so working with the development authority officer, we actually were able to put in a second road for this community so that they could be like an, any other community and not be at the, the mercy of a single point of control um, that's there. That's, that's important. These, these were high stakes in, in any way because it, it forced us, it forced the community to sort of address some longstanding issues. It was not long after that that the Lexington paper ran a big story saying, here's what we didn't cover in the 60s around the civil rights movement, right? This was in the 2000s and they had some catching up to do. But you've got to be, I think, open and aware and talk to people and listen to people and understand what the issues are and, and be willing to figure out what we can all do together to make things better. I want to go back to the conversation on China uh, a little bit. So uh, when I went to China last spring, I went to the Wenzhou Museum. Uh, and have you been there, David? Is is this the urban the urban affairs? Um, it's it is. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's um, really interesting because it was a celebration of their infrastructure, yeah. uh, and I mean so much so that we watched a twenty minute video uh, that was really intense and in, in this uh, an enormous screen uh, and very dramatic and very complex. But it was a celebration of the infrastructure and the development of uh, Wenzhou around. Uh, their water um, uh, around commerce and 
there, I, I started to realize there were very distinct differences between China, which we all know there are differences, and here. But in terms of architecture, can you t speak to that a little bit? Or what would you say were the uh, the glaring differences, uh, or even talk about the similarities between the, the two different places? Yeah, it, it, well, and that that urban institute is fat, it's relatively new. And you're right, Mike, it, it really emphasizes the incredible pride the Wenzhenese have in their environment. And But it's a museum that's really more like Disney World than anything else. There's, there's amazing presentations. There are seats where you get in, and they take you on a journey, and the seat starts moving up and down, and smoke comes out. I mean, it's, it's just— Four, 4D. It was a 4D really roller was. coaster as if you were in an airplane going through Wenzhou. But this is a kind of civic institution, right? It wasn't an amusement park, but this is how much pride they they have in, in their area. So here's China, 5,000 years old, all right? Um, what an incredible history to draw upon, and, and we can look at all of that. The other thing I think you see when you're there is, is how the landscape is really critical to what happens in China. And Wenzhou in southern China is famous for its mountains and its water. And they have a landscape tradition that is very particular called the Shan Shui tradition or mountains and water uh, tradition. Um, and it was interesting when I went over to work on the campus design and tried to say, here's how we're gonna try to, to make a Western campus in this, this context. There was a little bit of pushback and, and until we got to a point where there was, there was a, a kind of compromise that was reached that we would maintain the local landscape traditions even as we implemented Western spatial planning. Back to this point about spaces between buildings being more important than buildings them, themselves. But we were able to do that and then bring the local Shan Shui landscape tradition into the campus design. At that point, everybody was on board. And I'm really pleased with the quality of the campus that we've been able to build there. Oh, it's gorgeous. So let's talk about the landscape design. So New Jersey, we don't, we're not, you know, mountains and rivers and large spaces uh, to the extent of uh, where we are in Wenzhou, China. But New Jersey is an urban state. It's like literally the urban state when you talk about the U.S. However, we've got mountains, we've got, you know, farms, we've got any every topography that you can think of the Jersey Shore. And some of that is does is encompassed in the municipalities that we are supporting through the urban uh, spaces that we deal with. Part of the conversation that's happening right now is about environmental sustainability. So when you speak of uh, the importance in China and their long history of really connecting to the land and the water and understanding how architectural design or buildings must not disrupt that, there's sort of this feng shui kind of thing going on, right? How do we view our work here and our design and architectural engagement here in the U.S. that can incorporate that sort of thinking, particularly as we look at environmental sustainability. Barbara, I absolutely agree with you that, that New Jersey has an incredible variety of natural environments, and a lot of people don't realize that until you get out and explore it. it, it it's really wonderful in the kind of diversity that exists here. We also, as you say, we're the most urbanized state in, in the country. That means there's a lot of infrastructure there, and a lot of that infrastructure isn't necessarily used anymore. But we need to remember that most of that infrastructure was built for a kind of utilitarian purpose. It was built to serve a particular purpose. And a lot of times those purposes are gone. Then the question come, becomes, what do you do? How do you make something out of that that's meaningful in, in some way? And back to a point I made earlier, how do you do it where it's just not functional? 
but actually brings pleasure and joy and value to the community. How do you do those kinds of things? Um, Trenton is, is we're right in the middle of a whole series of things that come together. Their transportation networks, their water networks, their roadways. Um, you've got the cultural component to the capital city of the, the state. How do we start to bring this incredibly rich mix of things together in a neighborhood that's really had a hard time? You, 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 our students did the research uh, a year ago, began the research to understand what, what we were working with. And one of the things you see is that compared to 50 years ago, the population of Coalport went down 80%. It's come back a little bit, but think of that, 80% decline in population. But the thing you got to remember, the people who are still there were there for a long time. They know a lot. They've seen a lot. The, the kind of industry that existed there, which was basically China and porcelain factories, isn't going to come back. But what can take its place? So we have one faculty member who's a real expert, recognized globally for small-scale industrial 21st century facilities and how you begin to take the new emerging technologies and apply them in a way that becomes beneficial at a different scale than a big plant that takes up many blocks. So she's been working in Trenton trying to, to see what the opportunities are for a different scale of industry that will bring, keep some of that industrial heritage intact, but do it in a way that it really becomes the basis for a new economy, for people to be able to work and live in a meaningful way. So David, when space is a premium in urban communities and they're very densely populated, uh, tell me, how do you account for that when considering an enormous design uh, project? So let's look at two extremes. Think about New York, right, where I think space is at a real premium. We can, we can see that. But what's happened in New York in the last 15 years, right? A lot of space that was exclusively devoted to traffic has been taken away and put back into the pedestrian realm. And everybody's thrilled at that. So instead of serving a few thousand cars, you have tens of thousands of people who can move through and enjoy Times Square and Broadway and Herald Square in a way they never could before. They can see the buildings and see each other in a way that, that's so much better than being crowded onto a sidewalk because trucks and buses were going by on Broadway. This is one, one example. Think of the other example, let's say a city that's, that's had hard times and it's mostly parking lots because the buildings have been demolished Whenever you see a lot of parking lots, you know a city's not doing particularly well. But again, those are great opportunities to figure out what can be done there. Is it bringing in housing? Is it bringing in mixed-use development? Is it a new institution? And how do you think about these things? The key point about this, when we, when we go back to, to thinking about urban design, which is where we started, it, you really have to think in a different time frame than we're used to. I mean, we all live our lives in a matter of months and years, right? Think about even a, a student in college. They're there for four years, okay? If you're changing the nature of a city, it's really generational. It's step after step. I like to say it's, it's, it's not the algebra of doing an individual project. It's the calculus of doing project after project after project. And remember, this is a math lesson now. Remember what calculus is. It's not measuring any one equation, it's measuring the rate of change among sequential equations. And so the calculus of a city, are you getting better, are you getting worse? Are all these projects adding up in a way to make things better or not? And for Trenton, we're into this at the very beginning. It will be a generation or two before we, we get to a point where we all want to be. But that incremental progress, year by year, 
making one project build on another project. I'll go back to Vitruvius. It's commodity firmness and delight that it serves a purpose that is built to last and it brings joy to a lot of people. But I'll add one more thing. I think we, as we talked about New Jersey having so many different environments within it, I think it's architecture is at its best when it respects the particular local conditions and environmental conditions and even cultural traditions and really picks up on those things. There's no one answer here. You're going to do something very differently in Philadelphia than you are in Los Angeles. And that's good. That emphasizes the unique quality, especially in an age where the, the, so much of, of what we see on our screens goes to everybody. I think increasingly you're going to find people looking for what's unique and different and particular in how they live their lives because so much of what what we we take part in every day is all the same as everybody else what what's unique and distinctive that's what i hope architecture can work to achieve in the future uh, well david listen we appreciate your time your perspective uh we're excited to continue to see great work that comes from our students and uh, from everybody within our michael graves college uh, thank you for joining us today on urban impact it's been a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to Urban Impact, a podcast produced by Kane, New Jersey's Urban Research University. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get podcasts. For more information, visit kane.edu forward slash urban impact.